0: Hello out there and welcome to the Cotton Companion Podcast. This is Jim Stedman, Senior Editor of Cotton Grower, and I'm sure you've already noticed that this, our 70th episode, is going to be a little different. Yes, we're still coming to you from our virtual Cotton Companion studios, but my longtime partner in crime, Beck Barnes, has stepped away from the podcast to tackle some new responsibilities with Cotton Grower and within Meister Media Worldwide. So that means we're adding a new voice with some new input to this award winning broadcast, Mr. Frank Giles, a longtime friend and colleague based in Central Florida, who has returned as editor of Cotton Grower for the second time. Frank, welcome to the Cotton Companion. Well,
1: thanks very much, Jim. It's great to be back in Cotton. Uh, I was editor of Cotton Grower magazine from about 2001 into 2006. So uh, glad to be getting back into cotton. Uh, that's where my roots are. I uh, grew up in uh, Dooley County, Georgia, uh, town, little town, Unadilla. My parents had an Ag Chem dealership, cotton warehouses, peanut buying points. And I spent my high school and college years scouting cotton. So uh, I have a lot of cotton background. A lot of my buddies back home are now cotton farmers. So. I'm excited to get back into the cotton game, so to speak.
0: That's great. Well, I won't, I'm not going to tell our listeners how long you and I have known each other, but it is, uh, it's a fairly impressive number of years, which, you know, I'm, I'm not going to give our ages away because we're both, you know, like 39, I believe at this point, but uh, we're glad to have you on board. And, uh, and for you faithful listeners, we, we do have a great episode coming up, but first we're going to uh, bring you a short message from our sponsor in
2: This episode of Cotton Companion is brought to you by the Enlist Weed Control System, ready to help you control tough weeds with 2,4-D choline featuring inherent low volatility.
0: All right. Well, we certainly appreciate our sponsors for this podcast, uh, the folks at Enlist Turbicide from Corteva and the U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol, whom we'll hear from in just a few minutes. But first, as always, we're going to turn things over to our colleague, Robin Sickberg, for her featured interview with Shauna Hubbard. Who is Traits Herbicide Product Manager at Corteva?
3: Hello, I'm Robin Sitberg, Custom Content Editor with Meister Media Worldwide, publisher of Cotton Grower Magazine. My guest today is Shauna Hubbard, Traits Herbicide Product Manager for Corteva Agriscience. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Shauna, cotton farmers have a couple of new herbicide technologies to choose from. How can they use these different technologies successfully? Well, with the spread of resistant weeds and new technologies are a really important component of having tools uh, to to fight that and keep those weeds from robbing us of yields. And uh, as we look at the options, we have more choices than ever on new technologies, and I think choice is always a good thing for farmers. Uh, So as you think forward about 2020 planting and subsequent years, Uh, Field planning is a really important exercise uh, for everybody to think through which technology fits best on which acre and also understand what your neighbors are planting and uh, and the landscape that's around you. And as you go through that field planning exercise, uh, looking to put the new technologies on acres with your toughest weeds uh, and making sure that we fully utilize compatible crops uh, around us as well. How can farmers ensure they're making successful applications of Enlist herbicides? Well, I think sustainability of the new technologies is also important for everybody. Uh, We want to make sure that we get the most mileage possible out of new systems, including the Enlist weed control system. So I would say focus on good coverage and successful applications, really looking at how we maximize the use of nozzles, uh, carrier volume, uh, to make sure that we are spraying timely on weeds that aren't out of control in terms of height. And so all of those things help us get good sprays uh, that are effective at controlling those weeds and using full rates as well uh, make sure that we don't leave any partially resistant populations behind. I know one of the big concerns is off-target uh, movement. So how can you apply endless herbicides in ways that reduce that potential? Yes, as we look at preventing off-target movement, uh, that's a really important component of the way that we designed the Enlist weed control system, and specifically Enlist herbicides 240 choline with Colex D technology. Uh, that product has inherent characteristics of near zero volatility and reduced drift. But as you said, any time we're spraying, particularly post-emergence. Uh, We've got to be conscious of weather and conditions, Uh, so really making sure we understand wind direction, wind speed, uh, and making sure that we're not spraying into a temperature inversion. Uh, All these things are spelled out on the label and in our training, and we have seen a lot of success uh, with applications going out and staying where they are supposed to stay as long as we're following that label. Okay, well, thank you. That's good information. I think we're going to have to wrap up for today, but I appreciate your time, Shauna. Thanks, Robin.
0: Okay, a big thanks to Robin and Shauna for their contribution to this episode. So we're going to move ahead now with a look at some of the the biggest items of interest that are currently impacting cotton. And much of it, of course, is still related to the COVID-19 and some new announcements aimed at providing some financial relief at the farm level. Now, Frank, I don't know about you, but uh, you know, like the majority of people, sheltering at home is creating some opportunities for distractions. And over the weekend, I was distracted uh, with my kids watching a classic Looney Tunes cartoon in which Bugs Bunny and Yosemite Sam, two of my favorite characters, were running against each other for political office. Now, Sam was his usual blustery self, and he was running around kissing babies and Looking for any advantage, whether it was legal or not, uh, to win the race. And at one point, after Sam was handing out some cigars to potential voters, Bugs offered Sam a cigar of his own, to which Sam exclaimed, Caroni, coroni, my favorite. Then Bugs lights the cigar and it explodes. Now, I'm not going to say that a 60 year old cartoon has predicted an exploding COVID 19 pandemic. But it struck me as a little coincidental considering the way the virus has kind of exploded through the global business and, and economics, or maybe it's just cabin fever starting to rattle my brain a little bit. What do you think about that, Frank? Do you think Bugs Bunny is has uh, is, is sort of been a, a good precursor to to what we're seeing now?
1: Uh, well, I've always thought Bugs was probably a pretty good profit, so <laughs> it very well could be. I've been... I've been watching quite a few of uh, Andy Griffith's episodes, so that's a good, uh, good pandemic watching as that's well. That's true.
0: That's true. Well, either way, in a statement released uh, on April 17th, uh, U.S. Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue announced a new $19 billion immediate relief program from USDA to provide support to farmers, ranchers, and consumers in response to COVID-19. Now, this program, which is known as the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program, or CFAP, as we will call it, uh, is going to provide support at the farm level, help maintain integrity of the food supply chain, and ensure that every American continues to receive and have access to the food they need. Now, there are two major elements to this program. The one that that really has the impact for the cotton market is there's $16 billion dollars in direct support for farmers and ranchers to help cover actual losses where prices and market supply chains have been impacted and to assist producers with additional adjustment and marketing costs resulting from lost demand and short-term oversupply uh, for this 2020 marketing year. Now, as we understand it, payments are going to be limited to $125,000 for each commodity with a $250,000 payment cap to an individual or entity. And the rest of the package, the other $3 billion, is going to go for the purchase of fresh produce, dairy, and meat by USDA in partnership with regional and local distributors whose workforce has been impacted by closing multiple food service businesses. Uh, These products are going to be packaged for distribution to food banks, community, and faith-based organizations, and other nonprofits serving people in need. Now, Frank, I know you're sitting there in Central Florida, uh, and and there's not that much overlap between cotton and, and the, the citrus and vegetable markets, but there are some similarities. So what are you, what are you hearing from folks uh, in your neck of the woods about this?
1: Well, I, I'm also editor of uh, Florida grower magazine and we do cover the citrus and vegetable industry here in Florida. And you may have seen a lot of the headlines of, of this uh, Florida vegetable growers, especially that are having to plow under some crops because their markets have collapsed uh, due to the, uh, mainly due to the food service uh, demand falling off. And so there's been a, a lot of crops have been put under. The citrus folks have done actually quite well because everybody remembers vitamin C helps build the immune system. So our orange juice sales have been good uh, due in part to the, the virus. I think everybody is certainly appreciative of the the uh, funding that's coming across uh, with this new assistance program. I think, as you would expect, uh, some of the leaders in the fresh produce industry are saying, this is great, but we're probably going to need more because the financial impact on on Florida growers and other specialty crop growers is going to be pretty tremendous.
0: I, I would tend to agree with you I think even when you look at uh at the numbers that are being thrown out there put out there in terms of what your what an individual grower can receive in terms of possibly receive in terms of a payment it's never going to be enough for uh for some of the issues and some of the losses that uh that growers of of all commodities are going to have to deal with so obviously there's still a lot of final details about eligibility rates and implementation that that have to be settled uh, and as soon as those are, are put in place, I'm sure USDA will let us know what those are. Now, the one thing I found interesting about this, this was this information came out on April 17. And from looking at it from a strictly cotton perspective, this funding package comes, and it was probably totally coincidentally, on the heels of a letter from 21 cotton belt senators to Secretary Purdue last week that urged USDA to work with the cotton industry to help develop or help deliver some much-needed aid. Now in that letter, the Senators noted that since the beginning of 2020, cotton futures prices have declined 30 percent. And as retail stores around the globe have shuttered, orders from U.S. textile mills have dropped as much as 90 percent in the last month. So cotton merchandisers, merchandisers and distributors are also facing additional costs for storage Interest and other carrying costs as worldwide demand is significantly depressed. And that's that's a direct quote from from the letter. The senators also obviously encouraged USDA to work with the industry to craft policies that will aid each segment of the cotton industry. Uh, this package is going to help, but I don't know that it it gets quite down to the detail on on a commodity by commodity basis on uh, on what what's going to happen for for each of those. Uh, as I understand, also it wasn't just. Cotton belt Senators sending letters to uh to Secretary Purdue. It was also associations and other folks working with other commodities as well as you would expect so uh again, the industry's uh is taking a good hard look at this uh they're being active they're being proactive and uh and hopefully uh the folks in Washington are, you know, are reacting favorably at this point. Hopefully, this is just maybe the beginning or the or, or the the next touch point in terms of getting some relief out out to the field. So we've we've said it before, and we're probably going to say it again, uh, listeners. If you have questions or concerns about the challenges posed by COVID nineteen on your operation, by all means, please tell us about it. Uh, you can reach out to us on Cotton Growers' Facebook or Twitter pages, or you can simply email me at jstedman that's J-S-T-E-A-D-M-A-N, at meistermedia, meistermedi com. We certainly don't have all the answers. Uh, we're, we're following this just exactly the same way you are, but we'll certainly reach out to experts and try to get an answer for you if you have some fairly specific questions. But before moving ahead, we're going to take a little break right now for a message from our good friends at Cotton Incorporated, They're going to tell us
2: about the U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol. It's time for U.S. cotton producers to come together as a community through the U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol. When you enroll in the U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol, you'll help strengthen U.S. cotton's position in the global marketplace through our collective efforts. With the US Cotton Trust Protocol, we can lead the charge and create the sustainable cotton the US deserves. Enroll now at trustuscotton.org. That's trustuscotton.org. The US Cotton Trust Protocol. Are you in? All right. Thank you. A big shout out to Cotton
0: Incorporated, who does a good deal of the heavy lifting on behalf of our industry. The uh, US Cotton Trust Protocol. Just another example of the extra effort to help build demand for our crop, and we're proud to have them as a sponsor. So now we're going to move to the uh, some of the other news of the day, and Frank, why don't you, uh, you kick things off for us?
1: Okay, in addition to COVID-19 in the markets, the industry is also focusing on planting time. And although most of the cotton belt is still in that get ready to plant stage, USDA is already tracking planting progress through their weekly crop progress report. For now, as of April 20th, 11% of the U.S. crop has been planted, slightly ahead of the five-year average for this date. To no surprise, most of those planted acres are reported in Arizona, south and coastal Texas and California. A little bit of activity was also noted in Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. Certainly, as we move through the season, we'll keep you updated on the latest stat- status of this year's cotton crop. I know up in Georgia, I was there recently, and the tractors were rolling in the fields. And, uh, but they, ha- they have had some cool temperatures up there, and they're mighty wet right now, so things probably have slowed down a little bit.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm sure the, uh, that small percentage of, of Georgia acres are, uh, are certainly isolated in certain areas. And, you know, here in the Mid-South, growers are still still trying to get into some fields that are still a little bit wet, trying to dodge some rain uh, and finish up with corn planting. But I think this is probably, from what I understand, this the end of this week is probably the window closes on corn. So we'll start seeing, uh, seeing more activity and maybe a few acres shift over to cotton. We'll, we'll see. Taking a look at our next news item, uh, Mississippi State University has hired a new cotton extension specialist. His name is Brian Piralisi, and he accepted that job and and went to work on April 1st. He uh, he succeeds Darren Dodds, who now heads the university's Department of Plant and Soil Sciences. Now, uh, Brian Piralisi is a native of Leland, Mississippi, which I believe is also Beck Barnes' hometown. And uh, he earned a bachelor's degree in agricultural pest management from Mississippi State, a master's degree in business administration from Delta State University, and he is currently finalizing his doctorate in agronomy from Mississippi State with an emphasis on nutrient management and soil fertility. So congratulations to our soon-to-be Dr. Puralisi on his new appointment. I'm sure the growers in the state are looking forward to to meeting him, and, and so are we.
1: Well, next we'll take a look at uh, some soil temperature information. L- Lewis LSU's Ag Center Cotton Specialist Dr. Dan Fromm is reminding cotton growers that they should depend on soil temperature rather than the calendar to determine optimal planting time. Recent cooler temperatures in many parts of the Cotton Belt may have slowed seasonal seasonal soil warming and could affect the critical germination period required for cotton. A cumulative effect from cooler temperatures during germination can result in things like malformed seedlings, loss of the tap root, reduced vigor, undesirable stand, and increased likelihood of seedling disease, all of which can lead to stand loss and yield reduction. And that says, from, from is why it is important to monitor soil temperature and the five day weather forecast before planting. Farmers should look for a mean daily temperature of 65 degrees Fahrenheit or greater or greater at four inch seedling depth measured each day at 8 a.m. for at least three consecutive days. Research shows that yield potential may be reduced when the accumulated number of 60 degree days is less than 10 during the five days following planting. LSU Ag Center has developed a publication when to plant cotton, which provides more information on how to determine the five-day outlook for 60-degree days. You can find a link to that publication in the article on soil temperature and, plant and planting. Currently posted on cottongrower.com.
0: Thank you. And and next, we're going to take a look at uh, some information from the Soil Health Institute. Uh, that organization has released the first episode of its new Healthy Soils for Sustainable Cotton webinar series uh, designed for cotton producers across the country. Uh, this series is available on uh, the Soil Health Institute's YouTube channel and the Soil Health Training webpage, which you can get to by going to the Soil Health Institute uh, online, with a new episode that's going to be added weekly until mid May. Now, this series is designed to help producers, crop consultants, and other advisors design and implement a soil health management system. The first presentation in the series focuses on the importance of soil health with subsequent episodes touching on the links between soil biology and soil health, soil health planning principles, nutrient and pest management, some key soil health indicators, and management practices that can be applied to farm operations. And I think I said soil probably way too many times in that, but Anyway, uh, it's a good series. Uh, please, if you have time, please take, check it out.
1: Jim soil is awfully important, so it can't be said enough.
0: It cannot be said enough. It just needs to be <laughs> said correctly.
1: There you go. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the BASF FiberMax One Ton Club for 2019. 92 cotton growers who achieved yields of four bells or more with FiberMax cotton varieties during last year's harvest we're welcome to the FiberMax One Ton Club for 2019. Those qualifying growers included 14 first-time winners, bringing the overall One Ton Club membership to 1,206 growers. Among the qualifying members, special awards were presented in categories such as most varieties, most acres, highest loan value, highest yield, and highest gross value. uh, One-ton club member Blake Fennell of Earth, Texas was the lucky winner of the annual drawing for a two-year lease on a Ford Super Duty F-350 King Ranch pickup truck. A full list of winners can be found in the One-Ton Club article on cottongrower.com. I remember when two-bell and three-bell cotton was amazing, and now we're talking four-bells. That's amazing.
0: That's true, and 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 I'm I know I've been to this one ton club event uh, numerous times. It's always it's always fun to uh, to get in and and meet with the growers and their and their their families, uh, and just see the excitement and sort of this friendly competition within the room, and and certainly the anticipation on drawing the drawing for that uh, for the lease on that truck. Uh, I I Frank, haven't you've been to this meeting before this event before, haven't you?
1: Yes, I went several times. Actually, I had a stint where I did uh, PR work for uh, FiberMax Cotton Variety. So okay. in, in that world, I, I attended and I believe I may have attended as a editor of Cotton Grower as well. So it was always a good time to be with the growers. And it's amazing the number of growers who are now members over 1,200.
0: Yeah, and you would you would think when you look at I think looking back at some of the membership on this, you would think obviously the majority are coming out of that out of out of the West Texas area, but it's surprising how many of these winners and how many of these uh, these folks involved uh, are coming out of other areas, out of you know eastern and, and south central Texas, out of New Mexico, uh, even occasionally over into uh, into parts of the uh, of the mid south. So it's, uh, it's certainly a, a broad-based group, and we, we applaud BASF certainly for keeping this, uh, this event going. And before we step away from the news, uh, I want to direct our listeners, uh, direct their attention to Frank's profile of the 2020 National Cotton Council Chairman, Kent Fountain, which you can find in our April issue, and also online at cottongrower.com. Now, I sit back and, and look at it as it's a classic case of one Georgia boy profiling another one and it offers a really good look at some of the challenges and issues, uh, that Kent is going to be focused on this year with the NCC, as well as a look at his own genning and business operations. Frank, it was a really well done story, and I know you, you and and Kent had a, had a great opportunity to get together to talk about that.
1: Yeah, it was great. I, you know, it's a great way for me to get my feet back into cotton and, uh, sort of get a lay of the land from Kent and uh, the National Cotton Council.
0: Sounds good. It was a, it's a great piece. So again, I urge you uh, listeners just to, uh, to take a few minutes and if nothing else, go to cottongrower.com and look for that article. Okay. We have spent uh, probably too much time on the financial aspects and, and the current relief efforts for COVID-19. And so now we want to shift gears and take a look at the farm and rural health side of, uh, of this virus. Dr. Calvin Trostle, who's Texas A&M AgriLife Extension agronomist in Lubbock, has spent a lot of time in the last few weeks advising growers of they need to take in and around their farming operations to try to prevent COVID-19 infections. I had the opportunity to meet with him recently uh, via Skype, and he had some great insights about the virus and also about cotton agronomics. So we want to share that interview with you right now. To this episode's market segment. We know that most of you, depending on where you're located, are either planting or preparing to plant this year's crop. Uh, But like it or not, we're headed into a season sort of under the cloud of this COVID-19 virus, and that requires some special measures and considerations to keep in mind. Joining us today to discuss what growers and other rural residents need to be doing now to stay safe is Dr. Calvin Trostel. He's Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Economist based in Lubbock, Texas. Dr. Trostle, thanks for joining us today.
4: Morning, Jim, and I'll I'll correct you on that one word, agronomist. I think you may have said economist. <laughs>
0: <laughs> at, at, at this point, at this point, what's the difference? You know. Really? Oh
4: yeah. So, well, it's certainly interesting. Uh, you know, I'm a I'm a Kansas farm boy. Uh, I talked to my brother what he's doing. Uh, colleagues here across Texas, we certainly had to uh, postpone or cancel a lot of our extension programs across the state starting about March 20th. And, uh, you know, I, that that's kind of hard to do because I enjoy interacting with producers and being in a position to just, you know, share information that they may not have, whether it's planting or hybrid selection or decisions related to cropping and so forth. Uh, but uh, I think the economy here is something that we certainly see that agriculture has an opportunity to help backstop, uh, you know, not just in a regional level, but across the state or whatever state our listeners are in to, to help kind of keep things going at the local level as best we
0: can. Right. Absolutely. Now, I know this time of year, like you mentioned, you're usually with growers or talking to groups and you're offering advice on, on basically what they need to getting ready for planting whether that's soil testing or field prep or weed control or variety selection and you know the list goes on and on. Um, We know agriculture has been deemed an essential business and rightfully so uh, but recently you've also been talking about how important it is for growers to prepare and adjust uh, for this COVID-19. What are you telling folks and, and what kind of motivated you to take this message on?
4: Well, I, I think I had a conversation with uh, a farmer from Lamb County, Texas, and he got me to, to thinking about this. It just, he had observed uh, at, at the local level in some areas where maybe, and this would have been a couple of uh, weeks ago now that some of the farm groups, you know, the coffee pot was still on, the doors were still open. And I, I think a lot of farmers, uh, that's, it's kind of, it's part of their social fabric, their interaction, to to get together with other farmers, maybe early in the day over lunch. Mm-hmm. But uh, right now, that is just something that we, we kind of encourage folks to, to keep their distance a little bit. And I, I read this morning that in Texas, we still have about 70 counties that do not have – is that right? Yeah, we're in the range of about 70 counties that do not have a – a, their first reported COVID-19 case. Uh, largely rural, some of those counties are very low population, I think up in Kansas, it's uh, maybe about 40 out of 100 and some counties still don't have their first case, but I don't want anybody to get complacent about that. The, the thing here is, uh, like you mentioned, Jim, uh, some of those things we're normally talking about, but you and I both, uh, our listeners, uh, uh, new vocabulary: coronavirus and social distancing, and COVID nineteen. And and I think in terms of our producers, uh, there's there's something that a lot of our more urban uh, cousins probably uh, would would look at farmers and ranchers and say, "You folks are lucky. You're out on a farm. You, there there's some natural isolation in a lot of what you do, and that works to our advantage. And so uh, in, in weed control. Uh, across the U.S., our weed scientists in cotton, and grain sorghum, and corn, and sunflower, uh, other especially crops, they'd always say when you're when you're starting your crop with regards to weed cro- control, we say start clean. That is the weeds that you've got out there. You've done something to to spray, to cultivate, to get them out of there. And so, in terms of coronavirus and COVID nineteen, I guess the message Jim would be stay clean. And uh, that is because uh, we need healthy farmers here in the US. So we don't wanna see anything uh, get impeded because of sickness on their part. And I think this probably extends to their employees as well. Any farmer that is relying heavily upon labor, maybe they've got long-term hired hands or seasonal work, they need to communicate to those individuals as well that they're important and they're gonna be needed uh, in a large scale and the the more we can keep the agricultural economy rolling, that's going to help make up, or it won't it won't fully compensate, but it'll help diminish some of the the downturn we've seen in our economy, uh, especially in urban areas, because it just you know businesses are closed and so forth.
0: Right now, you mentioned you mentioned something about the uh, you know folks in, in the more urban areas look at maybe look at the the the, the rural segment as you know maybe we've got things things better, and yes, our number of cases are down and things like that, but at the same time, you know, those rural areas are also dealing with sort of restrictions almost in terms of hospitals and in terms of medical, available medical care. Uh, what are you, uh, you know, are, are growers, are, are, are people really taking that into consideration in All this at this point that should something happen, they may or may not have the care that they need locally?
4: Well, I think that's a good point, and I I have mentioned to some farmers uh, in some of my discussions and other radio programs I've done is if, you know, here in West Texas, in the region that I serve immediately, we have about eight or nine counties that do not have a hospital, and uh, that's out of about 21 or 22 counties, and then some of those counties don't have a primary care physician either. And so just that ready access to medical care is is just a little bit more difficult. And I think that's all the more reason to just to try to do the best we can to stay healthy and minimize the possibility of infection.
0: Uh, what you're seeing or hearing, how are folks handling this new normal right now?
4: Well, I, I think uh, one farmer I talked to here in the Lubbock area, he said you know, he lives in South Lubbock County. But he just said, my wife and I he says, we're just we're staying out of Lubbock. And, uh, you know, one thing that uh, my family's doing, and, and this may be available in rural areas as well, but the, our grocery stores have been very, have worked hard to to do curbside pickup that just minimizes that exposure. And, you know, as here in my area, as, as we look in the newspaper on a daily basis, we realize, that, hmm. There's another six or eight cases that uh, maybe ten or twelve. They have no idea how the person got infected, where where it came from, and uh, if you're keeping yourself isolated and so forth, I think really you're you're very safe uh, in terms of that regard. Uh, it has to be transmitted. Uh, the virus does, you know, by inhaling somebody's uh, cough drops or uh, touching a surface and so forth, and so. Uh, again, I think farmers in the rural area, you know, within their families or their immediate employees, <clears throat> that that's a good situation. Uh, it, it may still seem odd to them, but we know that at some level, this is for a period of time, and it may be sooner. It could be later than maybe what we hope for. But again, coming back to just just farmers, uh, any crop, any state, uh, your role and, and what you do and produce helps. Uh, keep our economy going, and that's why I think you're important. Like you mentioned, food and agriculture is designated as a uh, essential business, and that's far more than just grocery stores or food service uh, like restaurants.
0: Definitely, it's, it's it's a difficult profession to take a day off in. <laughs> at this point. Which which I guess leads me to my next question: at the grower at the farm level, what does what do growers need to? Do they need to put a plan in place should, say, one of the, one of the farmers or somewhat, some, someone who's a primary operator in the operation, should someone come, you know, become sick? Uh, you know, how, how will things continue during that period of time while someone might not be available?
4: Well, I think that's, uh, that's certainly a scenario, Jim, that we hope doesn't happen the first concern is is the person who gets sick to, is to ensure that uh, they're being taken care of, whether uh, they isolate at home or or medical care if it's necessary. My father-in-law, uh, he's here in Lubbock with us. He's 82, and you know when when this first started to come up, my wife and I just said, you know, Dad, you and Mom just need to stay home. We will make the runs to the grocery store and so forth, and my my first thought was he was going to be, oh no, don't worry about it, I'll be okay, we'll be fine. But no, really, he hasn't brought that up. And and I could see a lot of farmers that just say, you know, my dad, when he was with us, he was say oh no, I don't want to bother anybody, I'll be fine. And, you know, out on the farm in eastern Kansas uh, and ranch, you know, he worked whether he was sick or not. This is a little bit different situation. And I think most farms here probably have uh, it's not just a one-person operation. There's going to be other people, a family member, a spouse, uh, someone they're farming with, or, or maybe a senior uh, person that works for them. They're going to know what to do. Certainly they can continue to advise what needs to be done. And, you know, If somebody got caught in a really tough situation where, where they are kind of pretty much a one-person operation, uh, I would just say, you know, don't, your neighbors that you've known for a long time probably would want to know if you were having trouble. And, and so I would say to those farmers, let, you know, if, if you're sick and you can't operate for a while or you have to be hospitalized, just let just let your neighbors know. And they they would want to know that you're sick and they would want to help you if they can. I'm quite confident that you know, that's just the fabric of agriculture here in rural America. That's the kind of people we are.
0: You talked earlier about, you know, uh, places where, where growers normally like go to their gins or to their local retail outlets in the mornings or local coffee shops, you know, to have that first cup of coffee. And, you know, they'll tell the tales that always get taller and, you know, and stronger every day. Um What kind of adjustments have you heard that are being made at the ag retail and and equipment businesses at this point?
4: Well, I'll I'll just use the local co-op in Leroy, Kansas. That's where I grew up. That's where my brother farms. And he told me about 10 days ago, he said, you need herbicide. They'll set it out. Uh, They'll get the feed on your truck. Uh, The fuel pumps are open. Uh, you have fields that you need spray to get ready for planting corn. He said, get on a schedule. They're doing it. All those things are going on. And uh, if you need to talk to somebody in the office, uh, maybe by appointment. And, and just keep your, your distance uh, careful there. But uh, So it's like my brother said, and it'd be the same way in other areas. It's, it's Business as usual, Jim, it's just done a different way. And uh, most of the retailers here, uh, we had to go pick up some herbicide for my work group for Texas A&M AgriLife recently. And, uh, we, we called uh, Plains Grain and Abernathy. We made arranged the transaction over the phone, provided our, our work credit card number, and then they just set the chemical out and, and I had my technician pick it up for us.
0: Mm-hmm. And that raises up the question, too. You said earlier, talking earlier about the adjustments you've had to make in uh, in working with with folks and, and certainly I think, you know, with using Zoom for classes and, and things like that. Uh, how is this going to impact or how is it impacting your research work in the field this year?
4: Well, I think, uh, you know, at least within Texas a and we uh we have uh, paperwork to fill out to request permission uh, for any related travel right now. But, uh, I think, uh, again, partly because, for example, at the the Research and Extension Center I'm at here in Lubbock, uh, it's it's very open space. Uh, There's very few people in the building right now, but uh, among the field labs and farm services, we're progressing for the most part. I think in my particular case, uh, I will need to scale back on some of the on-farm work that I had anticipated for this summer. I've got two projects that that I will for sure uh, prioritize as far as on farm. Uh, But I may have to set a couple of things by uh, aside. But a a lot of the research folks, uh, and it just depends on the nature of your work. If you've got lab experiments that could could be delayed for a month or two before you start them, maybe that's uh, what needs to be done. Uh, if you are, let's say you're with, uh, before I came to Lubbock, I was at the Texas A&M AgriLife Research Center at BOMA. That's, that's uh, mostly rice research. And all their material was, was probably uh, just about to be planted, already planted. So there's a case where the researchers and the, and the folks working with them pretty much have to acknowledge that we're going to have to get this done. And because that's too important to, to miss a cropping season. If you're a plant breeder, and so I would imagine they, they progress with that, just being careful while they're on the on the job. And then uh, some of my colleagues uh, have been getting fertilizer and uh, herbicides out for some of their work, just getting ready. But again, we're for the most part we're able to do that, Jim, without uh, any real concerns about health or safety. Um, and uh, there there will be a little bit of a cutback, but we'll try to minimize that and any impact it would have on producers.
0: That's great. And, and finally, I, I, I have to ask, since you're first and foremost an agronomist, I wanted to make sure I got that word out completely and correctly this time. Uh, what do growers need to be doing now, just on a general sense, to get this year's crop in the ground?
4: Well, I think uh, a lot of the decisions have probably already been finalized in terms of what producers are going to go with uh, for their crop. And I looked at the USDA crop intentions report uh, from March 31st and. And, uh, you know, if someone look at that report and see corn acreage up uh, so much the way it is, uh, or soybean too, they might be thinking about some last minute changes into another crop. But uh, a lot of the herbicides, you know, once you make your decisions on herbicides, uh, we mentioned that earlier about weed control, uh, start clean. And, and part of that is is your pre-plant, pre-emerge herbicides. Uh, Once you make those applications, often that locks you into a narrow range of crops. Uh, Cotton crops, uh, you know, for the U.S. cotton crop uh, acreage uh, from USDA was about very similar to last year, I think, within plus or minus 1%. And uh, in the Lubbock area here, because of prices, I know a few growers that maybe are rethinking that just a little bit. But uh, I think for the most part, that's what they know the best. That's what they will go forward with. And if they've got their yellow herbicides out, which we recommend, uh, that's one of the best ways to hold off Roundup-resistant pigweed is to have a pre-plant, pre-emerge out there so that you can stop the initial flush of weeds in the first place. And so that herbicide will will keep a lot of folks locked into what are, uh, for the most part, seed may already be on hand with a lot of folks. And uh, if you have some things that come a little bit later, for example, in my region, the Southern High Plains, uh, we may have some of our crops that don't get planted until maybe mid-June. That could often would be grain sorghum. And so there might, and that's a grass crop. So you don't have herbicides out yet. is uh, uh, isn't used very much here, but uh, dual is, and, and dual, uh, or metolachlor that that really gives you more planting options uh, than if you had atrazine and so forth and so those are a few decisions that might come a little bit uh, later we had heard that there were some grain exports uh, had restarted to China which we were very encouraged by but then the virus came along and so I, I don't know if that's kind of put a, a hiatus on that or not but uh It's all, I know farmers uh, in just about any crop in the U.S. right now, uh, there's not too many crops that farmers would look at the board, look at the futures, look at the contracts uh, on lesser crops and say, wow, that's a really good price. We don't really have that luxury right now. And I know that's very challenging. There's a a few bright spots out there, but they're not gonna have enough acreage probably to really make any large changes in what farmers have kind of already planned.
0: Dr. trust that that's that, that all good information, and we certainly appreciate it. And and hopefully, with a little extra planning, we're all going to be able to get through these necessary adjustments and and have a good crop year. Uh, I want to thank you again for joining us today. This is this has been great. I really appreciate it.
4: Well, you're very welcome. Happy to contribute and appreciate your efforts as well.
0: Thank you. Appreciate it. And now back to the rest of the Cotton Companion. Many thanks again to Dr. Trostel for taking time to visit with us. I I hope y'all enjoyed his message. And speaking of messages, here's another, we need to bring you another brief message from our sponsor Enlist, and then we'll be right back to close out this episode.
2: As cotton is emerging and growing, cotton farmers are preparing for their annual battle against weeds. And the weeds keep getting tougher. Phytogen cotton seed with the Enlist trait is helping control those tough weeds. Farmers who've planted Phytogen W3-FE varieties are making Enlist Herbicides the cornerstone of their weed control program. After making pre-emergence treatments featuring residual herbicides, they're taking advantage of the convenience and flexibility of Enlist Herbicides post-emergence. These herbicides offer a wider application window with no cutoff dates, days after planting restrictions or time of day spray restrictions for application on Enlist crops. Learn more about the ENLIST system by joining one of our webinars, led by an ENLIST field specialist, to find out how you can maximize success with this ENLIST technology. Visit enlist.com for registration information. All right, that pretty much takes
0: care of this installment of the Cotton Companion podcast. As always, we want to thank ENLIST and U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol for sponsoring us. And thank you, too, dear listeners, for joining us. If you like what you're hearing from us, by all means, tell your farmer friends about this podcast. Frank, how can folks find our podcast?
1: Well, there's three easy ways to do it. Uh, First, you can go to uh, growingcottongrower.com and add a forward slash companion in there. So it reads cottongrower.com slash companion. You can also subscribe to our channel on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts these days or sign up for our weekly e-newsletter, the Cotton Grower e-news. You can can do that by going to cottongrower.com slash subscribe. And also be sure to follow us on social media. We are at Cotton Grower Mag on on Twitter and on Facebook, you'll find us by searching Cotton Grower Magazine. And our latest issue, the April issue, should be in your mailboxes soon. That's
0: great. Uh, And finally, to quote our buddy Beck Barnes, who we will lasso back in in front of his microphone from time to time. Uh, This podcast is produced by Tyler Hatch, who works at the Mothership Meister Media Worldwide in Loughley, Willoughby, Ohio. My name is Jim Stedman. I'll be back with you in two weeks for the next episode of The Cotton Companion. So for now, on behalf of my own cotton companion, Frank Giles, we wish you all the best and stay safe.
2: Thank you for listening to this episode of Cotton Companion. Visit Enlist.com to learn more about the Enlist weed control system and to hear from farmers experiencing the technology.